Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast for an international break edition of our show. You know, things sort of slow down around this time and we get a few funny, strange news stories or potentially uh, Premier League takeover bids (laughs) happening during this slowed down period. But it is going to be kind of like an after hours edition of our show. I am joined by Nathan Strauss. Hello, hello. The international break is always weird, um, but it's even weirder right now when I don't think that it should actually be happening. There is a whole like air of uncomfortableness surrounding this international break and we're starting to see because, you know, a couple of weeks ago when the international break was about to start, we were just starting to see a couple players pop up with positive tests. Probably most prolifically, it was Sadio Mane and Thiago from Liverpool. And now clubs have sent their international stars away to play for games and we're seeing you know it's almost every day someone else is being reported to have tested positive or in like the case of Jordan Shakiri, it's like a false positive test and now he's like been able he's been cleared to go back to the Swiss national team and it's all very confusing and it makes me a little bit uncomfortable and it certainly sounds like that's the case for you too yeah I just don't I don't see the need for these nations league games to be going on at all right now. I especially think it's, it's made even worse when you consider that most of these teams were playing three games over the course of like 11 days. Cause a lot of the teams added friendlies um, in that first week. And when you consider the fact that all of these players who are at clubs have that, that whole pool of people that they have to, you know, already be potentially exposed to, then you basically, you know, move these players into the national team environment, which is like the worst possible situation, because now you have what 25 people plus another 40 staff members who have all been exposed to 25 people plus 40 more staff members at their own clubs. It's like, you know, a a COVID's best dream ever. Right. So it's, it's, and there are just so many potential adversarial effects that this could have. Like we already saw Kieran Tierney who has tested negative a bunch of times now be forced to return to London. He might end up having to miss the Arsenal man city game this coming Saturday because he for one period of time was more than was less than six feet apart from Stuart Armstrong who tested positive. There's, there's no reason for these games to be happening. Not to mention the fact that, The season is already condensed by about a month. And in theory, all of these national team games could just be played at the end of the season, which would provide a natural run up into the Euros. um, Right. All while keeping people sequestered in the same. I think that's the thing, right? The, The whole UEFA Nations League experiment was was to happen because it was an easier way to segue into Euro 2020, which is now Euro 2021. And it seems just a bit strange to have these like World Cup qualifying games. And I understand the World Cup hasn't been moved, but it's just, it's like a little, I understand that like because of COVID and the way things have shifted around, like we have to do things in a little bit of a backwards manner. 
but it does seem a little bit odd that the Nations League and international friendlies are all happening before we've even had, you know, a Euro 2020 or 2021 sort of deal. It seems like it's just happening for the sake of there has to be an international break because that's how soccer works. And we know that because of COVID, like we've had to change around the way the international soccer calendar works. And I just don't see why that couldn't have applied to international fixtures as well. Yeah, and it's it's pretty infuriating when you consider that they're just like it seems like every day there are like another two or three players who test positive. It's also not fair to the national teams who are playing for meaningful reasons right now. You know, Nations League aside, you basically you basically had to look at Scotland and Ireland both playing in playoff games um, while having to field squads that were without their you know three or four of their starting eleven, um, and I just don't think that that is equitable to teams. Uh, whatsoever and it gets even more it gets even more complicated when you consider that some players have to travel um, to nations with mandatory quarantines so you look at mls clubs are playing basically three two to three games a week and players returning from common bowl qualifying are going to have to miss an extra three or four games as a result of quarantines so it just seems like a, a, a terrible situation all around and one that could have been easily avoided had it not been for the insistence of, of execs to make this tournament go on. I think Kevin De Bruyne, who just returned um, back to Man City with an injury problem, put it best when he said, we've basically been playing soccer year round and we're going to be doing it for the next year as well. I think this time could have been better used to potentially give players a little bit of a break, um, especially for Premier League teams who don't have the five substitutes this year, um, unlike the rest of Europe. So all in all, Pretty disappointing to see, um, but I guess not surprising given what we know about how UEFA and other international organizations operate. Yeah, and I think, and we're starting to see it harm teams who are chasing titles this season because obviously bigger clubs are, you know, they're going to be more, they're going to inherently have more players who are going to get called up for international duty. And, you know, you think about Liverpool, who a few days ago, Nabi Keita tested positive amongst a bunch of other players for the Guinea national team who also tested positive. So that's now the fourth Liverpool player who has tested positive for COVID-19. And I just want to read Inter Milan, who I think you, Caleb, and I talked about being you know, probably the number one contender for that Serie A uh, championship this season. They have had six COVID-positive tests in the past week. Uh, Bastoni, Milan Skriniar, Gagliardini, Nine Golan, Ionet Radu, and now Ashley Young over the course of the past five or so days. So we're going to start to see COVID impact the way we're already starting to see it in the Premier League, but now we're going to see it all around Europe in the way that this virus is going to start to impact, you know, the way top fours end up looking at the end of the season and also the way that championships are decided towards the end of the season, which I think is a pretty frightening prospect if we even get to the end of the season, which I think is also a massive question. I think we're kind of walking on thin ice in terms of finishing all of these seasons if we continue with the way that we're continuing. Especially when you consider the fact that European play starts in, what, a week from now? I think next Tuesday is when the first Europa League and or Champions League games start. With all of this increased travel, it is a recipe for disaster, and it only is a matter of time before, say, Tottenham return from you know, wherever they're playing in the Europa League. Or actually, a better example, um, Sevilla, they, their three group stage opponents are in Israel, Turkey, and Azerbaijan, I think. 
It's only a matter Ooh. of time between one of when for one of these teams to return back and shut down the entire like domestic season again. So it's a it seems to me like a very crappy waiting game. And this is not just unique to soccer. I mean, some of the scenes, no, 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 all no, of no. the scenes from college football this weekend were horrifying. Obviously, it's a it's a terrible situation as case counts continue to rise. We hit that you know proverbial second wave. Yeah, and you think about you know the amount of bending over, bending over backwards the NFL is having to do right now to justify having this Bills versus the Tennessee Titans game on Tuesday, which is the first time an NFL game is ever going to be taking place on a Tuesday evening, and the Tennessee Titans having twenty four confirmed positive tests in their organization whether it be coaches playing staff or otherwise uh, and yet the NFL is still proceeding uh, with having that game in Nashville it's just uh, it's a lot certainly and I think we're gonna start to see organizations governing bodies bend over backwards until their backs break when it comes to this COVID thing so like I said before I think we are starting to see everyone kind of tiptoe on thin ice when it comes to the way that sports are being played right now. And I just, I I pray that, you know, we're able to finish every single season, you know, whether it be soccer, obviously this is our main focus on this podcast, but you know, we're all fans of other sports around the world. And I'm just not entirely sure that we're going to see the end of, for example, I'm not entirely sure we're going to see a Super Bowl in February. I don't know. It just seems it's just, it's very dangerous when you consider that, um, there are real consequences to contracting the virus as well. Also, these are like specimens, yeah, right? Human specimens, you know, like they're, yeah, these they're are people. I mean, these, these are people with families. But these are also human yeah, beings. Like, yeah, like, human beings yeah. Um, I, I guess that's probably a good segue actually to talking about the sort of financial impact of COVID and how hard hit many of the clubs in the EFL have been. I think there's a big debate going on right now in England about what is the Premier League and the Premier League's club's uh, responsibility towards the Football League? Um, And just an interesting stat, I believe uh, 10 of 11 players in England's starting lineup from uh, their friendly last week had experience playing for clubs in the EFL pyramid outside of the Premier League. Um, so I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that. Actually, I will back you up on that stat. In England's friendly against Wales, the combined English 11 had spent more cumulative minutes in the EFL than that squad had in the Premier League. So I knew, yeah, see, I knew I had seen that stat somewhere. Thank you for thank you for backing me up on that. But clearly, the EFL is incredibly important for producing players. Um, England also has a very unique relationship with the club and sort of how people identify with their club. And you have all of these towns and cities whose livelihoods can occasionally hinge on the success of their teams, which I think sort of brings us into Project Big Picture, which is basically... Or someone like to call it Project Big Takeover. Yeah, Project Big Takeover. (laughs) Basically, a power grab. A big by, power grab. Yeah, by the biggest clubs in the Premier League who are looking to offer pretty much a, a one-time bailout of the EFL and its clubs in exchange for increased control and stability of their position in the English game. Nick, do you want to walk us through um, what the actual proposals are and sort of how they could affect uh, the game going forward? 
Right. So Project Big Picture, current, it is a plan that is, from my knowledge, has been worked on by John Henry of Liverpool Football Club, who is the chief investor. And interestingly enough, uh, John Henry's partner in all of this is Jay Glazer of Manchester United and obviously also the owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers franchise in the NFL. What this plan essentially does is it restructures the framework of the Premier League drastically while also, as Nathan said, bailing out the lower teams or the lower leagues in the football pyramid, in the EFL pyramid. So what it would do is that it would create an 18-team Premier League with two sides being promoted from the championship every season and the third to bottom team in the Premier League would enter a four-way playoff with the third, fourth, and fifth place championship sides in order to secure a place in the Premier League the following season. I think the most controversial thing is that voting rights in the Premier League as they are right now, it is one club, one vote. And in order to pass any big structural changes in the Premier League, there needs to be a a confirmed vote of 14 clubs or more. The way that Project Big Picture would restructure this is that the top six clubs would have voting rights, and those voting rights would also extend to the three clubs that at any given moment have had the most experience in the Premier League. That right now is Southampton, West Ham, and Everton. As Nathan said, this would also give a one-time £250 million bailout to e- to the EFL, the football pyramid. And it would also see a it would also see a 12% revenue increase in championship income, League One income, and League Two income over the course of the next couple of years. Championship income would raise by 15.5 million. League one income would raise by 3.5 million, and League Two income would raise by 2.3 million. Those sound like small numbers, but for championship and league one and league two teams, that is a massive, massive boost in revenue. So I think, Nathan, if you're a, you know, Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, Man City, Chelsea, Chelsea, who um, their chief executive has also been, uh, is also an American and who's been helping uh, John Henry and Joel Glazer work this thing out. This is apparently the 18th draft of this proposal that has been leaked. Um, so this has been in the works for a very long time. I kind of want to hear what your thoughts about it are. Specifically, I think, you know, digesting all of the criticism that this has received over the past couple of days, I think it's really been interesting because the people who are seeming to be the most vocal opposition to it are British people. And, you know, not to, you know, take the firm American stance on this, but this just seems like a very American proposal from two American businessmen to make very American changes to your British product. Yeah, I think there are a couple of good ideas that are in this bill. Like, I think the idea of having the 17th placed, or in this case, I guess the 16th placed team go into a playoff with the championship makes a lot of sense they wouldn't be the only league in europe to do this and i think it would be a way to uh give the premier league a little bit more of an edge um and it would also prevent i think some of these clubs from yo-yoing so much 
like imagining a situation where you had last year's last you last year you had last year's Bournemouth or, or Watford going up against this year's Fulham. Um, you can see why it might mean that clubs like that clubs get that were getting promoted truly earned their spot a little bit more than over the course of a really grueling championship season. But all in all, this seems to me like Premier League clubs who have guaranteed financial security going to like going towards the future capitalizing on the insecurity of smaller clubs and taking a small uh amount of their yearly budget and revenue and using it to you know secure massive massive benefits further on down the line it just feels very very predatory to me i do think that it's definitely exploitive exploitative rather um, and I am not a fan of any of the proposals. I don't like the idea of clubs having a disproportionate, uh, you know, voting share. Like the Premier League is not an oligarchy, right? It has to have some semblance of equality, even if there are certain clubs that generate more revenue. Like this isn't, we're not in NATO, right? Like it's not like Arsenal are, or Liverpool are mandated to support, uh, the Premier League or the EFL any more than any other club, but uh, I don't know. It just I, I'm not a huge fan of any of the any of the reforms um, aside from the potential playoff. I think if you are one of these big clubs, though, the tack that you take, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate for the sake of our podcast, if that's okay with you, Nathan. Of course. I think if you're Liverpool or Arsenal or Chelsea or Manchester United or Tottenham or Man City, you operate knowing that internationally around the world and specifically America, if we think about who created this proposal, um, being two prominent American owners in the Premier League, you know that the big clubs are the driving force for why the Premier League is so popular universally around the globe. So why not? Why shouldn't the big clubs have the most say in the way the Premier League goes because the big clubs are already the driving force for why the Premier League reaps so many, so much money year in, year out. You know, I don't think there's millions of Fulham, Burnley, Brighton fans in American neighborhoods as much as there are fans of Spurs, Manchester United, Arsenal, and Liverpool. You know, I, I've never heard of a, uh, <laughs> of like a Brighton and Hove Albion supporters bar in Boston. However, I do know that there is a Liverpool supporters bar, a Spurs supporters bar, and up until recently, an Arsenal supporters bar, you know, rest in peace, Lear. It is very predatory. I'm not going to, I'm not going to disagree with you there. I think it is, they are trying to capitalize on a very weak moment for EFL clubs going through COVID financials. But an executive, an anonymous executive at a League One club explained to The Athletic, this is a quote, the EFL is in such a bad position. Something has gone wrong. It can't continue. Who is coming up with a solution? Nobody, except for Manchester United and Liverpool. There is disagreement on everything in the EFL, and we never get a consensus. Whether it is resuming the league after lockdown or doing the playoffs, we never get anywhere. Time is not on our side, and if it stays this way, clubs will go bust. So yes, we're at the mercy of really rich guys, but it is good someone is taking initiative, as everything else on the table is so limited. Is it a disaster to have more power for the top six? Doesn't every industry have big players? This proposal will make clubs more stable in lower leagues, and now it will make more sense to own a lower league club. This will save many clubs from going bust. 
And that continue, he continues by saying the government won't bail them out long term. It'll only bail them out short term if they even come to a negotiation. Right now, the uh, British Ministry for Culture and Sport is in negotiations with the EFL to try and come up with some sort of one-time bailout. So, you know, if you are a fan of Macclesfield Town, whose club just got terminated due to um, really poor code financials, you know, if you're a fan of, of teams that are suffering right now, you know, I think of Barry FC of Bolton. This is a deal that looks really enticing, obviously in the short term. But if you think about like those financials that I was reading out, a few extra million pounds a year is super beneficial, especially if that number is going to, you know, we never, we don't know about the way sports are going to look two or three years from now in terms of the whole pandemic. But a few extra million every year for a League Two club is massive. I know, but just to play devil's advocate, something that you said there sounded very familiar. And so here is how, here's what I'm going to say. I think I know exactly what you're going to say. And I was, I was, I was waiting for this. (laughs) So you were like, well, no one has any, you were like, basically this guy in the EFL is like this anonymous guy. It's like, well, no one really has any ideas. So maybe we should just look to the dude with all of the ideas. So maybe we should just look to the guy who has all the ideas to uh, see where we should go from here. You know what that sounds like to me? Germany in 1926, right? Jesus Christ. Like, like <laughs> it sounds to me like any period of time where there's instability and all of a sudden you have these incredibly powerful people coming in and just taking charge and everyone else is sort of just forced to go along because otherwise there's instability and insecurity and all of that. I just don't think that it's necessarily the right move right now. Like there, there has to be a solution that saves clubs without like condemning them to a life in you know, League Two or League One, right? Because basically then what you're saying is why doesn't the champion, like I I proposed this idea via text the other day, but why doesn't the Premier League just straight up purchase the Football League, right? Like absorb it into one actual structure where you have teams from the Premier League giving up, you know, one and a half million to five million pounds per year to ensure the survival of Football League teams and it's all organized under the same platform. So streaming rights, uh, broadcasting deals, uh, transfers and no, loans, but then here's everything the problem. can be coordinated. Here's the problem with that. I know, I know what the problem with that is. But when you're looking at the fact that supporters in England right now are being forced to pay £15 per game in addition to the, uh, the monthly subscriptions to BBC and ITV Sport and BT Sport, it seems like this is just completely unsustainable. I know, but if you if, if the Premier League doesn't want to have the burden of having to have all of these other divisions on their back and increasing their broadcasting uh, and having that broadcasting price only have to go up so they wouldn't be able to make deals with, you know, where they get the majority of their money from, which is these foreign media deals uh, with other nations in order for them to stream the Premier League in different in a variety of different countries. So I think that's. It just it would be a really tough ask for the Premier League to go and buy the lower pyramid. It is I'm I I'm on the fence with this because I'm not. It's just the reason why I think it is such a inherently American proposition is because we know the way the sports landscape works in America. In you know the NBA, the NFL, is that it's the big markets that are always going to have the biggest say, right? 
whether or not it's Jerry Jones and the Cowboys in the NFL, the Crafts in the NBA, it's obviously like the Lakers. We saw the impacts of even the Milwaukee Bucks, the actions of Giannis in the bubble. It's big names and big teams that have the most say in American sports. And I think we're seeing that translate. You know, Joel Glazer and John Henry are trying to take that approach and where it's like the biggest names have the biggest say, make the most money and have the most governing power and pulling power. We're trying to see that. They're, they're trying to have that implemented in, especially now that Liverpool are back at the apex of the game. I think this is just, an, this is an attempt for uh, Glazer and Henry to implement, you know, a more American structure, if you will, in soccer. Yeah, I just, I hope it doesn't pass, but I have a sneaky suspicion that if this doesn't pass, something else will. If you're a League One team, this, pro- like, the government hasn't bailed you out yet. It doesn't look like they're any closer to agreeing on a deal with the British government for, you know, a single time bailout. Uh, Fleetwood Towns chief executive has already come out and publicly supported this plan. The Football League chairman, um, Perry, Perry, who is, I think it's the key, it's key to note that Perry is a former Liverpool chief executive. So he has, uh, you know, ties with one of the clubs who organized this deal. And if you are, we've already seen the power of clubs like Manchester City uh, this summer when they, when they just kind of made UEFA look like total fools. So we know that these big clubs have big power and we're starting to see them exercise it more and more. And I think with the more the game is getting impacted from a financial standpoint due to COVID, these clubs aren't really going to lose as much money due to their not being supporters in the stands as, you know, the Fleetwood Towns of the world. So if no one else is going to bail these teams out and like this EFL chairman said, or this EFL um, club executive said, if Liverpool and Manchester United are going to be the ones to do it, so be it. And if they have to, you know, kowtow to Henry and Glazer and the way that they want to change up the game fundamentally, if that means their clubs survive, Nathan, I think it's a really hard position for these teams to say no. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, even though, as Harrison Ford would say, I've got a bad feeling about this. Yeah, I <sighs> certainly think the voting rights thing is scary. You know, yeah, absolutely. To only have have voting rights only be the the top six clubs plus you know three if you want to call them mid table clubs you can. I think that's that's really tough because you think about if if a well meaning owner wants to buy Newcastle United, let's say let's let's give an example, you know. Someone with like perfectly good politics, perfectly <laughs> so good money. Not the Saudi Arabian government. Not uh, Saudi Arabia is, is wants to come in and buy. <laughs> yeah, wants to come in and buy Newcastle United. If the big six feel like that buyer could be a threat to their power in the Premier League table, they could just totally veto it without the consent of any other mid-table club. Like that is a pretty scary proposition. Oh, it's terrifying. It's totally. It's it's. We, we don't want the Premier League to become like the UN uh, Security Council, where you have the USA, England, Germany, China, and Russia with veto powers, if my memory serves me right. Maybe France is in there, right? Veto power is fundamentally a terrible idea um, for any sort of functioning league. And uh, right, I just hope this, I hope it doesn't pass. 
and uh or if it does pass that it removes that sort of because there's kind of an assumption that promoted teams are going to struggle in the premier league but imagine how demoralizing it would be if you're sheffield united or if you're wolves or maybe if you're Leeds this year and you get promoted and you have a great year but then you get you know shafted because of some rule that you weren't even able to like fully decide on you know that just doesn't seem fair to me um and it sort of gets rid of the idea that you know another a, a team like Leicester could ever succeed again. Yeah. Well, it looks like according to this athletic article, which I've pulled most of my information from for this discussion, and I will link to it in the show notes. It looks like zoom calls and private WhatsApp messages are still happening between the big six clubs. It looks like, you know, the public pushback has not deterred them in any way from trying to make this project into a reality. While the Department of Digital Culture, Media, and Sports of the British government has come out and condemned it, as well as the Premier League itself, it released a statement saying that it was uh, highly unimpressed by the greed of the established elites. Um, it looks like it looks like it's 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 a real possibility that this could be this could be coming to fruition pretty soon if COVID nineteen continues to plague the financials of lower league clubs. Right. So that's certainly a story that we should keep our eyes on, uh, I think, for the uh, for the coming future. And also, I think, for years and years to come, this is not an issue that can just be legislated yeah. away. Um, like in, I said before, this is something that, yeah, this is something that John Henry and Joel Glazer have been working on for three years, it sounds like. Um, so I think this is something to keep an eye on for many years down the line, uh, maybe you know, 2022, 2023 is when we could really see this coming back into our lives in a uh, meaningful way. Right, so, especially if and when fans come back into the to stadium. Yeah, especially. Yeah. So yeah, that's project uh, project uh, uh, big power picture grab. power grab, whatever you yeah, want to call it. Big picture power grab. We'll know what you mean. I just think it's just like from a personal standpoint. When I saw that it was like John Henry and Joel Glazer, my heart just kind of sank a little bit because like this is just more. Um, <laughs> more ammunition in the chamber for people to like shoot at Liverpool or like condemn right. Liverpool or hate on Liverpool or whatever you want. It's, it's also just a, like, uh, wait, it's just a terrible look too for all of these clubs who have gotten government assistance from England to now be like, oh, well, actually, we could have afforded this all along, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that, that also it, extends it, to the transfer market, right? Like, I think it's, it's, it's not a good look for Arsenal to, to bring in Thomas Partey on the same day that they're laying off an employee who makes. 30,000 pounds a year, even if the move yep. makes perfect sense, because if there's no fans, obviously you're not going to have a mascot, right? Like the, the optics are bad, even when the moves make sense, um, which is yeah. sort of an unfortunate time. Yeah. We're in. I think it's, it, it just all goes back to the British government, right? If the British government isn't it, 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 like the theme of COVID so far in the British government is clean up your own mess, Right. Like we're not gonna like we're we're dilly dallying a little bit too much, and we're not gonna try to. I'm saying this because I have I have family who live in Britain, and this has been the sort of impression that I get from my discussions with them. Is it seems like if you live in not London, let's say, the British government is essentially saying to you, well, the fact that COVID is <laughs> is spreading again in your small cluster in Liverpool and Manchester is your own fault. 
for not following our ever-changing and loose regulations regarding social distancing and all of that um, that they're trying to hastily put back together right now. So um, I think they've taken that clean up your own mess tact with the EFL and the football pyramid. And like I said, they're just right now starting on negotiations to try and find, you know, a single time bailout. If I was like the chairman of a league one club, I would find it really tough to say no to, you know, money and a plan that is, is right in front of me. Like it's a plan that could be implemented in the next two years and it could, for lack of a better word, save my team, save my investment and save a bunch of jobs and people that I have to keep employed. Right. It's sort of a, uh, what's the word? A, What's the fancy word for deal with the devil that I'm totally blanking on? I mean, it's a little damned. If oh, you a do, Faustian, damned if you know. a Faustian, Faustian, yeah. a Faustian exchange mm-hmm. out of the depths of uh, my high school English memories comes that, that idiom, but yeah. right. I mean, literally the, the red day, devils are extending a deal yeah. <laughs> from the devil. I, that's actually really funny. That's something like, that's something like the kind of headline yeah. that the sun would publish, like deal with the devils. Um, which means that I probably really should give uh, maybe exactly I ammunition, the, ammunition for the sun. Right. Is, we do know, not condone. We do not condone trying. the sun on this podcast. Maybe we should switch from one red devils to the other red devils, the international red devils, if you will, of Belgium. Actually kind of a better segue than I planned on there, but a brief discussion, I suppose is merited for Belgium versus England, which is a game, which I know we yeah, let's talk about some actual soccer. Yeah. Actual soccer, not just Actual greedy, soccer. greedy multi-billionaires trying to harm other millionaires nope. and their clubs. Uh, this game kind of sucked. Like As far as the actual soccer went that was on display, it was not a pretty game. I mean, you had one of the best players in the world in Kevin De Bruyne being basically anonymous for 70 minutes. Uh, and if he was carrying an injury, um, I think that explains sort of that. Um, but you had an England lineup that, again, in true Gareth Southgate style, contained three natural right backs and seven overall defenders, basically amounting to a 7-1-2, while leaving Jack Grealish, who had a man-of-the-match performance in two games in a row at the club and international level on the bench, um, going up against a very nicely organized Roberto Martinez team. They played this really, really fun 3-4-3. It seems like they finally figured out that Timothy Castagna and Thomas Mounier are their solutions for wide backs. And they've found their center backs as well in Boyata and Jason Denayer, X-Men. Yeah, the days of the days of playing Nasser Chad Lee at left wing back in a <laughs> in a right. World Cup quarterfinal are behind us, it seems. Right. So I tweeted during this game that England are just so dire to watch right now under Gareth Southgate. Um, and this is coming off the backs of a friendly victory against Wales. Oh, you mean Dyer is in the guy who gave up a penalty? Yes, both Dyer and Dyer, D-I-E-R, the Portuguese man who plays in England's defense. And even though they got the win, I saw a lot of Englishmen, uh, English reporters saying, oh, this is such a big step for England, proving that they can win even when things don't go their way. And, you know, without full fitness for all these players, I thought it was none of that. I thought it showed complete tactical ineptity from Gareth Southgate. I thought it was an incredibly timid performance from England. They basically won the game via a soft penalty and a deflected shot that barely got in going up against a Belgium team that also wasn't at full strength, given that both Hazard brothers weren't 
uh, on the pitch. So I think a lot of England fans are really desperate for success. But I think that if Southgate is still in charge by the time Euro 2021 comes around, this team will get absolutely shellacked and blown out of the water. It'll be a repeat of their World Cup in 2014 uh, when they bowed out at the group stages in a group that contained uh, Italy and Uruguay. So that's where I'm at right now with this England team. Thoroughly unimpressed. I disagree. I mean, I, I disagree somewhat. I agree with some of your points. I think Southgate isn't exactly the most creative manager when it comes to the tactics sheet. Um, on the Jack Grealish point, I think he's been absolutely brilliant since the start of the season, uh, especially in an England shirt. He's been their most creative, um, inspiring player, I would say. I also think that um, it was my impression that he had been coming off of an injury. He wasn't expected to actually play in that Liverpool route for Aston Villa. And he was also working on an, uh, coming back from an injury in that first international friendly appearance against Wales. So I understand not wanting to start him from the jump. I just think Gareth Southgate is incredibly loyal to those players that took England to such heights in the 2018 World Cup. You know, you look at this 11, and with the exception of Mason Mount, Declan Rice, all of these players were players, and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, obviously, who is uh, playing in place of a injured Harry Kane, it looks like. All of these players were guys that took Gareth Southgate in England to the semifinals of the 2018 World Cup. And if you look at the mood in the England camp, the mood in the England camp is probably the best that it's ever been. And you look at the talent in this England team. This England team is probably, you know, the most talented England side since that, you know, 2004 to 2006, 2008 generation, you know, the likes of which that that team had like Steven Gerrard, Ashley Cole, Frank Lampard, uh, Rio Ferdinand, Michael Owen. It had stars on stars on stars, talent on talent on talent. And the problem with that team is that they were so loyal to their clubs. Frank Lampard was so loyal to Chelsea. Ashley Cole was so loyal to Chelsea. Rio Ferdinand um, and the Manchester United guys, David Beckham, were so loyal to Manchester United. Steven Gerrard and Jamie Carragher were so loyal to Liverpool that when they, when they got to England, uh, to England duty, they all hated each other and they refused to be a cooperative team on the pitch because their, their squad divisions... Um, were so crippling by playing, you know, what some perceive to be negative soccer by picking people like Eric Dyer and Harry Maguire, um, the Dyer Maguire rhyming shit center back duo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think what he's doing is trying to preserve squad harmony because I think, I think a thing that's really important with these international figures is that you are calling up essentially a collection of, not random, but scattered players who play at a variety of different levels at a variety of different clubs. And I think continuity, especially in a period of, of COVID soccer, is especially important. So while I agree with you that like the tactics aren't phenomenal, I, I don't think picking <laughs> three right backs to play <laughs> all across the pitch is ever especially, you know, a phenomenal idea. I'm not like super enthusiastic on England going forward. I think they're an ex incredibly talented team. But I also think it's really important to understand that 
the key to England's success going forward is going to be the harmony of this team. And it looks like there is a lot of harmony to go around in the England setup right now. Right. I just, I, I just, I just don't know how far this team can get given who they have at the helm. Well, hold up. I think it's also important to understand that they did win this game, right? We're, we're, we're almost talking about it like as if they had lost. And I think games in which you're, you're crap and you win, they're almost impressive as well, right? Like Belgium made it to the World Cup semifinals as well. And this team was far more intact, as you said, you know, playing a very fluid and organized three at the back system um, against an England side that seems, you know, they have three right backs, one playing center back, one playing right wing back, one playing left wing back. I, I just think there is something to be said about the fact that they were able to win this game under the cloud of negativity that surrounded this starting 11, Gareth Southgate, and, you know, everything preceding it. Right. I, I think that this team could be really fun to watch if you can imagine them playing a 4-3-3 with Raheem Sterling, Harry Kane, and Jaden Sancho as your front three, and then Madison, Grealish, and take your pick of center defensive mids, probably Jordan Henderson in a midfield three, and then Alexander Arnold at right back, maybe Kyle Walker and Harry Maguire as your center back pairing, and and then, you know, someone at left back who knows who they'll eventually pick to fill that role. Or maybe like it's a but, Tyrone but, Mings, Connor Kawadi. Maybe you give one of those guys a chance. Right. Maybe bring back John but, Stones. Are we giving up totally on John Stones? I think he's a pretty decent player. But I, I think it just speaks volumes. There's a stat from their friendly the other day. Ainsley Maitland-Niles um, took on more people in 14 minutes on the pitch than the rest of the team combined. No, sorry, than any other player over the course of the game. And I just think that, that there's a bit of hesitancy about this team that I think could really be detrimental. I think it's all down to the fact that like these are the people that Southgate trusts, right? These are the people who've been with him since, you know, think about Marcus Rashford. Marcus Rashford was someone who he's been coaching for almost a decade now. Gareth Southgate obviously was the England's U23 manager um, before taking on the job full time. So I think he's, he's sticking with the people that that he has a very good relationship with that has provided him with success in the past two or three years. And um, as long as he's getting impressive results, like a 2-1 win over a Belgian team that is also incredibly successful with some of the world's best players playing on the day, Kevin De Bruyne, Lukaku, who has been probably um, up there in you know the top three to five strikers in world football going right now, I just think um, he's not doing... It, it, he's not doing as poor of a job as is being reported. They aren't, you know, Germany or Spain, right? Or France that have... Or Argentina absolute, or Brazil. <laughs> or Argentina, who always have a stream of the world's most talented prospects coming through their doors every four years. You know, they do have the likes of Eric Dyer, um, Connor Kawadi, James Ward-Prowse, Reese James, Tyron Mings in this right. team, you know? And I think that they they do need... You are right in saying that I don't think Gareth Southgate is the guy who's going to bring England a World Cup. But I also am a big believer in squad harmony and culture. I think that gets you very, very far in international tournaments. Um, if the team is harmonious, as we saw in 2018 with this English, England team, uh, you know, there's obviously the photo of Della Ali uh, riding a unicorn floaty in the pool. Uh, those photos don't come out unless, you know, your team is harmonious somewhat. So I just think there is a lot to be said about the fact that he is sticking with the people 
who have brought him success in the past while integrating. I think, you know, you need to, if he's not integrating the likes of Jack Grealish, Jaden Sancho, Calvin Phillips, uh, even Tyrone Ming. So I think he's been pretty impressive for England so far. I think that is, you know, a bit of a red flag. You need to integrate impressive new talents um, steadily into your squad. Something to be said by keeping the harmony of this team intact as well. Right. I just think that there are several teams around the world off the top of my head, France, Portugal, Brazil, who have teams that are infinitesimally better, infinitesimally more harmonious, and with players completely entering the prime of their career. Like France is going to dominate Europe for the next 15 years. Um, They're going to become what Spain was um, when we were growing up. Have my doubts about uh, about this England team, given the nature of their opponent. And I guess Dude, we'll be able to see thing, that. Man. That's my thing. Like, if you're England, you shouldn't be expecting to win the World Cup, right? Right. You look at the you look at the French team, and you look at the players that they have, the players they have coming up, like Kamavinga, who look like incredibly promising talents. You look at the players that they have who are still in their prime, playing some of their best soccer for the national team. Paul Pogba when he plays for France, looks like a complete 180 to the Paul Pogba that we see who looks kind of like just done with the Manchester United project. He looks like, he looks he looks like, like com- Frank Pogba um, playing for United. Dude, he looks like Pogba Senior playing for France. He looks like he's ratioing everyone on the pitch. It's just like, um, I, I just think there is something to be said about these teams who, these international sides, who prioritize harmony over, you know, just picking and choosing. Yeah. Weird to say that France, yeah. Weird to say that France is the nation that we're choosing for harmonious national teams. What has 2020 come to, but this is a good international break podcast. It always seems like we get weird news during these things. Unfortunately, we don't have to deal with another international break for, I want to say five weeks. Yeah, well, the next time we come to you, it will have been another week of domestic soccer. We'll have a few big games to cover, the Merseyside Derby, uh, Arsenal versus Manchester City, and a few other uh, juicy fixtures about to go down, the Milan Derby. Maybe we'll touch on a little old firm Derby. Who knows? Uh, the old firm Derby behind closed doors is certainly going to be pretty uh, pretty depressing, but I think it'll still be a pretty, a pretty decent weekend of soccer. But... For this little after-hours edition of Corner Kick, when there's not a lot kicking about, it has been actually a pretty lively discussion. I've been Nick Vinden. Nathan Strauss. And we will catch you all next time.